Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the Sanctuary City podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on August 31st, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. And my co-host, who was worried when he found out the presidential pardons don't cover state crimes, is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the great state of Maryland, Francis King Curry School of Law. Before our conversation today, we must acknowledge the terrible time our friends in South Texas are enduring. Obviously, we're thinking particularly of friends of the show, Jessica Roberts, Jessica Mantel, Barbara Evans, and all our other friends at the University of Houston Law Center, South Texas College of Law, and Texas Southern's Thurgood Marshall School of Law. Well, we also hear uplifting stories as healthcare workers struggle to cope with the Harvey disaster. Uh, props, for example, to everyone at St. Joseph Medical Center. Uh, Long term, the public health issues may be extraordinary with contamination of the water supply, mold, and other toxic threats. If you're looking for a way to help, can I I encourage you to go to the Apple App Store and you'll see a direct link to donate to American Red Cross. It only took me a second or two. And if you're listening to Twill on your iPhone right now, prove what a great multitasker you are and uh, make a donation right now. So a couple of lightning features. I'll start off. As noted in many uh, earlier Twills, the last few months of the Obama administration saw CMS yield to a fair amount of sensible pressure and ban binding pre-dispute arbitration agreements in long-term care facilities. That provoked an injunction from a federal judge in Mississippi on grounds, frankly, that we were unable to fathom uh, as he uh, (laughs) issued an injunction. Um, It was followed by a CMS uh, NPRM in June of this year from the new administration saying it had changed his mind and said that allowing such arbitration would, quote, support the resident's right to make informed choices about important aspects of his or her health care, unquote. That is really quite nonsensical, isn't it? It is, however, generally consistent with Chamber of Commerce and other lobbying against controls on arbitration, uh, something that the uh, embattled Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is experiencing at the moment. Interestingly, earlier this month, The Hill reported that attorneys general of 16 states and the district have filed comments opposing that CMS reversal. In their words, quote, pre-dispute binding arbitration agreements in general can be procedurally unfair to consumers and can jeopardize one of the fundamental rights of Americans, the right to be heard and seek judicial redress of our claims. This is especially true when consumers are making the difficult decisions regarding the long-term care of loved ones. These contractual provisions may be neither voluntary nor readily understandable for most consumers. Hey, all cheer the attorneys general of 16 states in the district. Well, late last week, I think we have the most ironic contribution yet to this debate. HHS's OIG delivered a letter report to uh, CMS, to the CMS administrator, noting the level of abuse and neglect of nursing home residents and the apparent inability of CMS or its delegates to detect or report such abuses. Methinks that burying everything in binding private arbitration doesn't seem to be the way to throw sunshine on this particular problem. What say thee, Frank? <laughs> yes, yes, it's a, 
really sad to see this happening. And I was just commenting in my administrative law class the other day that, you know, it seems that on the one hand, sure, if you sort of kill off all of these uh, disputes via binding arbitration, perhaps they're saving themselves some legal costs. But on the other hand, what they're really also provoking eventually, you know, when there's humane regulation, either on the state or federal level, is much more finely grained regulation of what's going on in the nursing's homes if we can't count on the courts to redress grievances or to uh, deal with really bad care. So yeah, I do think this is really troubling. I also just wanted to throw in one uh, lightning round of my own, or I've got two. One is um, a recent Bloomberg story came out uh, very end of August that the FDA's consumer protection warnings are falling under Trump. And so this appears to be a possible trend here, although maybe it's just a hiccup of the new administration, but it's a 30% drop in the number of letters sent to companies about serious violations of federal rules. Of course, on the other hand, perhaps we could interpret this as uh, the fact that the Obama administration has sort of uh, scared these companies straight, but uh, many other interpretations are available. We've uh, given over uh, many minutes of tour coverage also to the EEOC's wellness regulations made under the ADA and GINA, particularly the regulations definition of voluntary uh, with its up to 30% incentive penalty. AARP challenged these regulations and the DC District Court um, read them and was really quite unimpressed. In particular, it found nothing in the EEOC's administrative record that explains the agency's conclusion that a 30% incentive level was the appropriate measure for voluntariness. They didn't strike it down. They threw the regs back to EEOC. So the ball is back in the agency court. But overall, it's hard not to agree with friend of the show, Wendy Mariner, an expert on uh, this area, who points out uh, that voluntary means um, voluntary. <laughs> yes, I think that's exactly right. And now, what's really surprising to me, I think Nick Bagley had a good post um, over on the Incidental Economist on this. And, you know, it's it's strange to me because there were certain ways in which I think the Obama administration made some own goals in terms of implementing the ACA in ways that did not respect a lot of the concerns of its allies, its political allies, um, or its uh, main constituencies, such as the interpretation of affordable coverage, um, having that only cover uh, single individuals as opposed to families, um, uh, with certain interpretations. Of the, with respect to the premium assistance tax credits. And then here, with respect to the, dis the disabled and to a lot of academics who write about wellness programs, um, I just published an article uh, co-authored with Gordon Hull uh, called Toward a Cor uh, Critical Theory of Corporate Wellness uh, in Biosocieties, where we talked extensively about the problems in these programs. And it just seems like there was not there were not uh, sympathetic ears or even openness to hearing a lot of these concerns at EEOC. So in terms of my uh, last lightning round issue, I just wanted to flag for everyone the uh, step taken today, actually, by Kamala Harris to co-sponsor Bernie Sanders' single-payer bill. Uh, There's a very good piece earlier this week uh, by Matt Iglesias and Vox talking about the need for left, liberal, progressive, uh, name your ideological category, think tank policy wonks to start working with the activists who are demanding uh, single-payer from the Democratic Party uh, because there, there are a lot of plans out there that apparently have not been really thought through enough, according to Iglesias 
Iglesias. And I think that with Harris, uh, who I think is definitely one of the front runners for the Democratic nomination, uh, signaling so early that she really takes seriously these ideas about single payer, that it really is a big wake up call for a lot of the um, progressive establishment to start looking more carefully and to develop in more detail some of these plans. Of course, on the other hand, and, and you know, it's funny, had the uh, Republican repeal and replace effort gone the other way, perhaps I would have advised the uh, Democrats that they should just keep things extremely vague and then sort of uh, write it all up in secrecy and then just ram it through. But we've seen the difficulty with that approach. Uh, so it does seem like the uh, the Harris move is sort of a, a signal to a lot of folks uh uh, left of center, that this may be the new uh, policy center of gravity going into the 2020s. Do you think Harris should avoid the Medicare for all label? It's pretty much accepted that that can't happen, not as we know Medicare at the moment. And I wonder whether concentrating on single-payer universal uh, coverage rhetoric might be better than Medicare for all. If you are going to go for a for all slogan, I, I wonder whether Medicaid for all is actually a, a more practical goal uh, for the progressives. You know, I was just talking to some folks who are pretty active in Maryland politics, and they were very uh, going in exactly the direction you're going, Nick, with respect to Medicaid for all. Also looking at the uh, efforts in Nevada that we covered a few months ago. I would say as well that, you know, in terms of Medicare for all, one of the interesting things here is that, you know, you could have multiple fronts on which the questions of affordability are being addressed. So Dave Dayan had a piece in The Intercept, I think a few weeks ago, where he talked about how before we advocate or before folks who want single payer advocate for uh, Medicare for all, there's a lot to be fixed within Medicare in terms of the degree of financial exposure that people experience when they're in Medicare. And there, particularly our past show guest, Allison Hall, Hoffman has done such a terrific job comparing the degree of financial exposure for individuals who are, say, on Medicare, on Medicaid, on employer-sponsored insurance, and on the exchanges. And so perhaps on the wonk level, maybe the emphasis should be less on uh, specifying what exactly single-payer would look like and more on how do you improve extant programs that offer some promise of coverage for all. But I think there's enough mental space and energy to go forward on all fronts. And I hope hope that we will spend some time, maybe in future shows, uh, talking a bit more about how Medicare could be improved, because I certainly don't think it is the ne plus ultra, uh, the, the final form of healthcare reform or health accessibility and affordability. From the sublime of universal coverage to the realities of today, the uh, New York Times just today reported a briefing given to reporters by an HHS official who insisted on anonymity. And the official hinted that the Trump administration is going to do the minimum necessary under the law and essentially hope that the exchanges will collapse. And that's particularly tragic and short-sighted, I think, given the relatively good news we've heard about the exchanges over the last week or two. First, the they're proving remarkably resilient. And we found out that there will be no bare counties this enrollment period, notwithstanding an administration that seems to think it's sport to create market instability. Second, the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics has just reported on the state of health insurance for Q1 2017. 28.1 million persons, that's 8.8%, were uninsured at the time they interviewed that's half a million fewer than in 2016, a non-significant uh, difference, and 20.5 million fewer persons 
than in 2010. So let's hope that doing the minimum necessary will not cause those numbers to dramatically change direction. Yes, I think this is really a, a ver- where the complete lack of interest or expertise in policy by Trump himself and the utter cynicism of some of his top lieutenants in this area uh, sort of come together. And this is why, for example, you see people like Jennifer Rubin, Bill Kristol, a lot of uh, very long-standing people in the conservative movement with uh, big names among conservatives in, in, in despair, in a way. I mean, just being very deeply upset by this administration because there really is no option outside of some level of maintaining private insurance markets. They don't just sort of come into their own. You know, you'd have to go back to the most sort of vulgar Hayekianism to think that you'd get a private insurance market that just could sort of uh, spring out of the current economy. You've got to have some sort of government uh, subsidies and regulations. And I think it's just very strange to me that at the very top of the Trump administration, there doesn't seem to be a grasp of that. It just seems to be a very short-termist strategy of political gain at this point. This week on Twill, we greet Louis Grossman, professor of law at American University Washington College of Law, where he is also an affiliate professor of history. He teaches and researches in the areas of American legal history, food and drug law, health law, and civil procedure. Indeed, he is recognized as one of our preeminent uh, contemporary FDA scholars. This year, he is serving as a law and public affairs fellow at Princeton, uh, working on a new book. Tremendous to have you on the pod, Lewis. Been reading some of your recent work. Fascinating stuff. Uh, I, I hadn't realized until our more recent occasions to uh, to meet in person and, and hear you talk and now read some of your materials, uh, your history background and, and the richness that uh, that brings to the discussions that you uh, you initiate. So I thought we'd uh, start, if we may, with an American Journal of Law and Medicine piece uh, that you authored, uh, AIDS Activists, FDA Regulation and the Amendment of America's Drug Constitution. So so why don't you tell us the story? Because it, it is a story of AIDS activism, which then really does illustrate and intersect with some really deep and important regulatory mechanisms. It is striking how recently in history FDA has come to embrace the goal of ensuring that promising medicines get to patients who desperately need them, as well as protecting patients from drugs that have not yet been proved to be safe and effective. And until the AIDS Act activists took to the streets, there really was uh, an ethos of traditional consumer protection that dominated FDA's view of regulating medical products. And the AIDS activists uh, really, really changed in fundamental ways the way that FDA itself views its role in the world. And it also changed Congress's view of what FDA's role should be in the world. So when I say drug constitution, I'm talking Talking about the essential fundamental principles of American governance with respect to drug and drug accessibility. And my argument is that ever since the AIDS activists launched their campaign, the approach of the American regulatory scheme to uh, drug regulation has never really been the same. And you'll notice that virtually every statutory amendment uh, in recent years 
has pushed the ball a little bit further toward speeding the approval of drugs and also increasing access of unapproved drugs for people with uh, very serious illnesses. Could you flesh out a little bit more for me this idea of sort of the quasi-constitutional super statute that uh, comes through in the piece? Um, uh, and it's an important issue generally, I think. Uh, uh, Abby Gluck had a recent Bill of Health post on the ACA as a super statute. How does this concept fit into this discussion? For a long time, constitutional law and constitutional legal scholarship was focused very narrowly on constitutional provisions and their interpretation by the courts. And there's been a revolution in constitutional scholarship in the past 20 years or so, a broadening of it to uh, expand it in two ways. First of all, to include all types of constitutive uh, activity with respect to constitutional law that takes place not just in the courts, but in the political branches of government, as well as outside government altogether in the media, in the press, on the streets. The second thing that has happened is to broaden the notion of what the Constitution is to not just the uh, we the people document that we all learned about in, in school, but also what Bill Eskridge and, and Eskridge and Farajan have called super statutes, which are statutes that establish basic fundamental structures and principles uh, that uh, shape uh, our government and our rights. And what they added to the conversation was the idea that constitutional activism can be directed toward the interpretation of those statutes as well as the interpretation of the Constitution itself. This idea of a super statute is so interesting. Um, and I, I did read Abby's post uh, at Balkanization, and I'm you know familiar with, with the Eskridge Farajan work because it appears to me that there's also a way in which there are certain legal revolutions that can leave the structure or the shell of the statute standing, but then totally change its meaning. So I think, for example, of the Sherman Antitrust Act, um, where which I think is one of the examples of Eskridge and Farajan, ostensibly generating you know this robust, durable um, uh, way of thinking about competition in America and promoting it. But then the Chicago School Bork antitrust revolution sort of really changing what it's doing to the point where now it seems to me many of the antitrust authorities are more concerned about labor cooperation and uh, than they are about major massive uh, companies. Uh, so I think that's interesting. I, and I, my worry is that, you know, the same fate might befall the ACA or might befall some of these other uh, super statutes. But I think the I only put a marker there because I think it, it shows the importance of your work, Lewis, because it's uh, your work f focuses so much on how citizens, others outside the court system can change, if not our direct interpretation of the law, at the very least, our sense of the overall purpose of the law and who it is meant to serve. Yes. And Eskridge and Farajan make the point that oftentimes a successful popular movement to quote-unquote amend a super statute is kind of a test run, which is ultimately uh, followed up by Congress, which amends the statute, the super statute, to reflect those changes. And in FDA world, um, I argue that this has happened repeatedly and that virtually every type of administrative experimentation with respect to speeding approval and making unapproved 
of drugs available to desperately ill people. Virtually every one of these administrative experiments has ultimately been reified in the statute itself. Very unlike the Sherman Act story that you told, where the amendment of the Sherman Act has taken place largely through judicial interpretation and application rather than amendment of the statute itself. One of the points that I think you make with regard to the FDA and this time of activism was that this is sort of post-thalidomide. The FDA is rigorously enforcing pre-marketing approval and a very relatively long track for approval. It has adopted the core principle of the randomized control trial. And one of the points I think you're making is that this interaction with an agency is somewhat different from others that perhaps had been noted because this was a social movement's interaction with an agency that was very much scientifically based rather than, say, policy-based. Is, is, is that an issue we should be discussing? Yeah, very much so. The scholarship on popular constitutionalism and super statutes oftentimes focused on broad civil rights statutes and the types of activism that went into, quote-unquote, amending them. Here, you're talking about a statute, the Food and Drug Act, that especially as the 20th century reached an end, was regulating a highly technical, highly scientific uh, field of uh, industry and of product. And in order to successfully advocate with respect to such a subject, you couldn't just take to the streets. Rather, you had to sort of get into the nuts and bolts of drug development and drug regulation itself. And as a result of this, there emerged within the AIDS activists a group of very, very uh, sophisticated autodidacts, people in many instances with no scientific background, who made themselves experts on drug development and drug regulation, and were speaking ultimately on even terms with people who had devoted their lives to these subjects. But that almost inevitably created a tension within the AIDS movement itself, because the broader population of AIDS activists, many of them, concluded that this group of treatment activists, these self-educated experts were in some way co-opted by the system because they were spending their time talking to the regulators, talking to industry, and uh, lost sight of the broader goals that some people in the uh, AIDS activist movement were seeking. And ultimately, it led to a complete schism in the late 1980s between the treatment activists within the AIDS activist organization ACT UP and the broader membership and the treatment treatment action group within ACT UP broke off and became uh, a, a separate organization which exists to this day called TAG, the Treatment act Action Group. Was there a similar schism within the agency, Lewis, as far as you know? I mean, was there a, a sharp break between those who believed in continuing with the, the RCT approach and the, the, the very conservative risk-averse approach and those who were looking to um, liberalize the process? And I guess that would be a question that we could ask again at the time of the uh, FDCA in 1997. We could ask it yet again at the time of uh, FDACIA in 2012. And 
And, and then in uh, contemporary times with the 21st Century Cures Act and the new FDA commissioner, is, is, is there a consistent group thought in the FDA or is that quite split too? Well, I think we have to distinguish between the agency leadership on the one hand and career people on the other hand. The attitudes towards leadership uh, of the leadership changes with different administrations ranging from very pro-regulatory consumer protection oriented commissioner like David Kessler under Clinton to the current commissioner, uh, Scott Gottlieb, who at least has a reputation of having a more libertarian approach to drug regulation. But beneath them is a dedicated core of career public servants, the medical officers at FDA and the people directly above them, who for the most part, I would say, had to be pulled along by uh, the political and philosophical changes wrought by ACT UP because they had a great deal of faith in the randomized controlled clinical trial and a great deal of faith in the importance of their job in protecting consumers from drugs uh, that had not yet been demonstrated to be safe and effective or at least that uh, had not been demonstrated to, to warrant being approved because the evidence demonstrated that the benefits outweighed the risks of the drug. And so I think as is the case in almost any organization, there's a little bit of self- uh, regard, pride in one's position and job. And their job was, for the most part, to make decisions for doctors and patients rather than let doctors and patients make decisions for themselves, at least as to the, the risk-benefit analysis um, of, a drugs, uh, of a drug that was seeking to enter the market. I'm wondering if we could step back a, a bit from the overarching legal principles and the regulatory ideas here to some of uh, your history, Lewis, because I mean, in the beginning of the article and various parts of this article, um, you offer a really richly detailed account of the people that are involved, the confrontations. Give us a sense of what was sort of the, the biggest moment of AIDS activism at, say, the Park Lawn Building, the FDA itself. What ultimately was were the activists demanding, the AIDS activists demanding, and whether they could be said to have succeeded or not? in terms of their immediate goals. And then longer-term influence, particularly with respect to your uh, marking out this very interesting sort of uh, alliance between, say, some of the most left activists and like AIDS activists with some more right conservative libertarian opponents of FDA regulation or opponents of what they would call excess regulation. So if you could just give us a sense of like what was the, the big confrontation and, and what they accomplished via that confrontation. Let me just set the scene. It was 1988 and the the AIDS epidemic was sweeping the nation and it was terrifying people. And in this day and age, we have come to see AIDS as a manageable chronic disease for many patients. But at the time, there was a almost desperate fear of this spreading epidemic. And there were very, very few treatments that FDA had approved. There was one drug called AZT that, that FDA had approved, but it was a very imperfect perfect drug. It was very toxic and it only delayed the progress of, of AIDS uh, and not by that much necessarily. So the in addition to the population as a whole being desperately scared, of course, a gay and uh, bisexual population, uh, male population, was especially scared because at that time, the disease was very much focused on, uh, on two groups of people.
people, um, gay and bisexual men, as well as IV drug users. And FDA approached AIDS in a way that didn't, in the eyes of these activists, reflect the desperation of the situation. It did approve AZT relatively quickly, and so that was a sign of, of flexibility, not just relatively quickly, but actually dramatically quickly. But it was not really uh, opening the floodgates the way that activists wanted. Activists who knew that they were going to die and they wanted to try anything that was in the pathway, uh, the drug development pathway that might help them. So they descended on the Park Lawn Building in Rockville, Maryland. Uh, it was a very uh, original idea in, in their eyes for a demonstration because it wasn't gathering around the White House or gathering around Congress. It was gathering around a drab bureaucratic administrative building that was the building in which the people who basically had the, their their medical fates in their hands worked. And um, I should mention, by the way, that they weren't quite as original as, as they, they thought because women's health activists in the early 70s had also conducted uh, a, a demonstration um, at the FDA. And in fact, that was a cause of some tension, I think, between the women in the ACT UP movement and uh, and the, the men because the women thought that they were the uh, many ways the inspiration for their uh, movement and tactics and the men didn't always acknowledge it uh, as much as they might have. But in any case, in a very dramatic uh, event covered by all the major media, the uh, ACT UP and other AIDS groups descended upon the, the building uh, where FDA was housed and basically shut it down for a day. Uh, there was a very lot a lot of theatrical uh, demonstration, costumes, signs. Um, and just to give you a sense of, of the flavor, they accused the FDA commissioner of committing genocide by not letting these, these drugs um, out into the market more quickly. And it was a one-day demonstration and uh, almost nobody got hurt. And uh, they dispersed, but you got the sense that nothing was ever really the same after that day. And FDA started to act in a more flexible manner to issue rules both concerning approval of drugs and early access to unapproved drugs that loosened the, the strictures to, to a large degree. And perhaps most dramatically, the AIDS activists themselves became central players in the drug regulation conversation. They were involved in meetings with industry, meetings with regulators, advisory committee meetings. In other words, no longer was this a dry technical subject from which the populace, the general populace was effectively excluded, but it, it was a, an issue in which patients, the people who were most directly affected by the availability or non-availability of drugs, were intimately involved. And this, in a way, is one of the more dramatic impacts of the AIDS movement in the 1980s, because to this day, pa patient activism is something that FDA has to deal with every single time it decides whether to approve or not approve a drug for a very serious condition. And there are patient representatives on the advisory committees, and there are patient testimonies at the advisory committee meetings, and there's just a great deal of pressure from patient groups. Now, some of these patient groups are industry-funded. Some people call them astroturf groups as, as opposed to grassroots uh, groups, but a lot of them are not. And it has completely changed the atmosphere in which drug regulation takes place. Now, just to talk on about, uh, in, in response to your question, what was the uh, sort of the regulatory um, outcome of the activists' F 
efforts? Well, I draw a distinction between the approval of drugs and the availability of drugs that are not yet approved. And the AIDS activists had a tremendous impact in terms of getting drugs for illnesses for which there is there are no adequate remedies approved more quickly based on different kinds of evidence. For example, surrogate endpoints, which are not clinical benefit endpoints, but rather sort of substitute um, endpoints. This is called accelerated approval, fast track, breakthrough therapies, and then the whole user fee structure, which was very much supported by uh, lots of stakeholders in addition to patients, but which has led to an adequate funding of the drug review functions of the FDA and has led to a dramatic drop in the time it takes FDA to approve a new chemical entity. On the other hand, the availability of drugs that have not yet been approved, while higher than it was before the AIDS activists took, took to the streets, is not as sweeping a change as, as it might have been. And I say in the article that this is not because of FDA. FDA approves 99% of the requests for pre-approval access that it gets. It's because of industry. And I don't say this in a way that's accusing industry of anything. It's just that ultimately there's an incentive system in place where industry doesn't have any particular motivation other than pure beneficence to make drugs available prior to their approval. They're concerned about tort liability. They have production challenges. It's not like they just have vats of these unapproved chemical entities sitting around that they can distribute. They feel like the wide availability of unapproved drugs that are currently in development and in, in the course of trying to get NDA approval might disrupt that process. It might disrupt it by deterring people who might otherwise participate in the randomized controlled phase three trials that are the basis for drug approval, might deter them from participating because they would know that they could go to a treatment IND um, rather than a, a, a traditional IND and get the drug rather than confront a 50 or 33% chance that they're getting a placebo. And in addition to that, industry has long been concerned about the impact that bad results in one of these treatment protocols might have on their, their NDA, their new drug application itself. But most important is that they can't charge for the drugs that they're distributing prior to approval unless they get FDA permission. And even then, they're only allowed to recover the direct costs of producing the drug and administering the compassionate use program. So despite this, I would say that there is much broader availability of unapproved drugs for people in desperate need than there was in the early 1980s. But the changes are not as dramatic as in the drug approval process itself. And that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Grossman, who is on Twitter. He is at Lewis Grossman, L-E-W-I-S-G-R-O-S-S-M-A-N. Uh, thanks for joining us, Lewis. Uh, anything important going on at American that we need to know about? Yes, there is absolutely something important going on at American University that everybody needs to know about, which is from October 26th to October 28th this fall, there is a major conference called Next Steps in Health Reform, and uh, the Washington College of Law is co-sponsoring this with the American Society uh, for Law, Medicine, and Ethics, as well as University of Toronto and, and the School of Public Affairs and the Kogod School of Business at American. And it is an, a stunning all-star lineup who will be discussing how we muddle through the 
health reform mess we're in right now. And so I encourage everybody to take advantage of that event. Awesome. So we post our show notes at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter and Frank is at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.